welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. I'm back with the Sports Law Roundup, everything I think you need to know about what's happened in the sports law-ish world over the last two weeks. You give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the sports law world. Here we go. Let's start with college sports and a developing gambling scandal. On April 28th, Alabama baseball lost 8-6 at top-ranked LSU, which is not a particularly noteworthy result, except a sportsbook alerted an integrity monitor who alerted Louisiana gambling officials that there had been abnormal activity surrounding that baseball game. People raised some eyebrows when Alabama's top starting pitcher was a late scratch with an injury. But the reports are now that an individual was placing bets on that game in Ohio at a sports book located in the Cincinnati Reds Stadium, the Great American Ballpark. And the reports say that the surveillance video shows that the person who was making those bets was communicating with the Alabama baseball coach, Brad Bohannon. Now, Alabama fired Brad Bohannon shortly after this news was released, and they didn't give much detail about why, saying only, quote unquote, that he had violated the standards, duties, and responsibilities expected of university employees. So we may have our first major gambling scandal in college sports since the Supreme Court struck down the federal ban on legalized sports gambling. There is no evidence that any athletes are involved in this scandal. For now, it appears just to implicate Coach Bohannon or former Coach Bohannon and this other individual who placed the bet. So we'll continue to see what happens there. But what I think is really interesting about this case, among many other things, is I mentioned that abnormal activity, which tipped off some people that there may have been some foul play or inside information or game fixing going on. Keep in mind that this story involves a person placing a legal sports bet on a college baseball game in a sports book located in a major league baseball stadium. Five years ago, That itself would have been the abnormal activity. But of course, what we're worried about here is despite the legalized sports gambling, at least two things. One, it is still a violation of NCAA rules for athletes or employees of the athletic department. Two, there are the additional issues raised when a coach is betting on a game that he is actually managing. And then you add in the scratch of that starting pitcher, and this could just be the start of a very damaging and deep scandal. Sticking with college sports, with the NCAA facing pressure from Congress, the courts, the National Labor Relations Board, the media, the public, your parents, the NCAA Division I Board of Directors unanimously voted to require schools to provide a series of new benefits for college athletes 
that includes requiring all Division I schools to provide a list I'm about to give. Now, keep in mind that some schools are already providing this or already required to do this, but the list of benefits includes, one, out-of-pocket medical expenses during an athlete's playing career, two, medical coverage for athletically related injuries for at least two years after graduation or the completion of a college sports career. Again, schools in the Power Five conferences already are required to do this, and Pac-12 conference schools actually cover athletes for four years. Three, funds that would allow an athlete who had been on a full athletic scholarship to complete an undergrad degree anytime during the 10 years after the end of their playing career. And then four, protection against an athlete losing their scholarship for athletic reasons, again, as is already provided by Power Five schools. So as the NCAA continues to ask Congress for help, they make a pretty significant step in terms of providing greater benefits to college athletes, which may make it more likely that Congress would be willing to give the NCAA protection in return, but we'll see. Still a very long way to go. But one thing that is clear is that college athletes, particularly at the Division I level, will have the opportunity to gain many more benefits and compensation than they had the ability to do 5, 10, certainly 15, 20 years ago. Sticking with And then in the NIL front, most of the discussion has been at the college level, but there is a lot of activity going on at the high school level. North Carolina was the latest state to have its high school athletic association vote to approve high school NIL activity. That means that 27 states plus Washington, D.C. now permit high school athletes to do NIL deals, notable states that still prohibit it. Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Texas. We'll see how long that continues to be the case. And then finally, one of the cases I mentioned in the last rundown, the antitrust lawsuit against the Ivy League challenging their prohibition on athletic scholarships. The Ivy League has now added Seth Waxman to their legal team. Seth Waxman, former U.S. Solicitor General, one of the most well-respected appellate Supreme Court lawyers in the country, also happens to be an alum of two Ivy League institutions, Harvard and Yale Law, has been tapped to represent the University of Pennsylvania in that case. So the litigation continues to mount against the NCAA and the Ivy League, and the heaviest hitters are involved in this case on both sides. And that Ivy League lawsuit very early in the process, but yet another threat to the existing collegiate model, whatever that means to you. Shifting gears to the NFL. We just had the NFL draft and Sports Business Journal tweeted out a really interesting and significant fact that for the first time in NFL history, four out of the top five picks in the NFL draft were represented by black agents. So from players who have their NFL careers ahead of them to players whose NFL careers are in the past, let's talk about Brett Favre's defamation lawsuit against Pat McAfee. As you might recall, Brett Favre had filed a defamation lawsuit against Pat McAfee based on some comments that he had made on the Pat McAfee show about the lawsuit against Brett Favre. 
for misspending millions of dollars on welfare money that was supposed to help out some of the neediest people in Mississippi. Among other things, McAfee said, quote, Favre tied the hands of the poor people and took money right out of their pockets and is certainly in the middle of stealing from poor people in Mississippi right now, unquote. McAfee moved to dismiss the lawsuit, claiming that his show is a comedic sports media broadcast and that his comments about Favre shouldn't be viewed as actual news reporting, that these are more just opinion and nothing that should be taken either seriously or as actual fact. They also say that Favre hasn't pled the actual malice, which would be necessary to prove a defamation lawsuit against a public figure. It's not enough to prove that they were just false and hurtful statements, but the law requires that Favre prove or at least allege that he did so with knowledge that the statements were false or with reckless disregard as to whether they were true or false. In addition to the lawsuit against McAfee, Favre has also filed a defamation lawsuit against former NFL player Shannon Sharp and Mississippi auditor Shad White. In another defamation case, there is the long-running feud between Barstool Sports and Michael Rappaport. You might recall that not long after Michael Rappaport was recruited by Barstool, and actually, you may not recall this. I'm not sure I recall this when it actually happened, but... After Rappaport was recruited by Barstool, he and some Barstool employees got into a social media feud. And things that start with social media feuds usually do not end well. There aren't a lot of stories that say, hey, don't you remember that social media feud that ended in this great outcome for everybody? So this feud culminated in a Twitter tirade by Rappaport in which he insulted fans of Barstool known as Stoolies. And he said in one of those tweets that anyone who calls himself a stoolie has, quote, already lost in life, unquote. Barstool then terminated Rappaport's contract, including a podcast they had planned for Barstool, and Rappaport sued Barstool, both for firing him and for defamation, saying that Barstool's hosts and different employees had accused him of being a racist and a stalker and hitting his girlfriend and having herpes, none of which is true, Rappaport said. In Barstool's defense of the lawsuit, they said these were just schoolyard insults that were not defamatory and were non-actionable statements of opinion and that no one would take those claims or those comments as being serious. And instead, as Barstool said in their motion to dismiss, that, quote, the culture of Internet communications, as distinct from that of print media, such as newspapers and magazines, has been characterized as encouraging a freewheeling, anything-goes writing style that signals to readers that statements made in these forums should be interpreted as opinion or hyperbole rather than fact. Which, if you think about it, if that is true, if we are not to believe or take as fact things that are said on social media, we're all in trouble. We're probably all in trouble anyway. In any event, the judge dismissed the defamation claims back in 2021, and Rappaport has recently filed an appeal saying that he wants the Court of Appeals to take another look at whether those statements made by Barstool employees were or could be construed as fact and not just as 
opinion or again as these schoolyard insults not meant to be taken seriously. Barstool apparently responded to the lawsuit being revived with a statement that, quote, I'm shocked Rappaport is still alive, unquote. We will see how those defamation lawsuits play out. One more note on the NFL, back to our gambling stories. You remember, again, maybe you don't remember this or maybe you hadn't actually listened to it, so I don't have to tell you whether you remembered or not, but NFL players were suspended for violating the league's gambling policy. In response, the Players Association has sent out an email to all NFL player agents warning them that these recent suspensions arose from players using mobile apps on their phones, either while at work or traveling with their teams, and highlighting the fact that apps like FanDuel are, quote, highly sensitive and very sophisticated at tracking, among other things, user location. So be sure that people using the app are not prohibited gamblers or not using it in a location where they're not allowed to place bets. Unquote. So if you're an NFL player or any person where you have a job where you're not allowed to bet on sports or not allowed to bet on sports in a particular location, be careful about the apps you are using on your phone. Over to the NBA, Nikola Jokic and Phoenix Suns owner Matt Ishbia had a little dust up in the sidelines of their playoff game. They're not the only NBA owner and player who are having a dust-up. As my good friend Mike McCann reported over at Sportico, former Knicks star Charles Oakley is involved in a legal battle with Knicks owner James Dolan. Back in 2017, during a game at Madison Square Garden between the Knicks and the Clippers, Oakley was sitting a few rows behind Dolan. A security guard apparently asked Oakley why he was sitting so close, and then they moved to detain him. Oakley resisted. He was pushed, shoved, fell to the ground, and then escorted out of Madison Square Garden, where he scuffled with the guards. And Oakley has scuffled with many guards in the past, typically on the court, like point guards, shooting guards, those kind of guards, not security guards. You get it. Oakley sued Dolan and Madison Square Garden for assault and battery, among other things. And the legal question is whether the guards applied unreasonable force in removing Oakley. District court judge granted summary judgment to Madison Square Garden based on a video recording of the incident where the judge said no juror could conclude based on the video that the degree of force used by the security guards to remove Oakley was objectively unreasonable. But the Court of Appeals disagreed with that conclusion and reversed the ruling in favor of Madison Square Garden, saying that a jury, not the judge, needs to sort out exactly what happened. And given that there is only one video without sound, there's a reasonable question that a jury needs to answer about what actually took place. For those of you who are watching the show Jury Duty, you know all about how these videos can maybe be misleading. For those of you who are not watching the show Jury Duty, after you watch it, you can think back to this moment and start laughing. But my reaction to this case, and Mike shared this in his article in Sportico, is that this will not only set important guidance for how much force security guards can use at arenas when they're removing 
certainly spectators, not just former players, and also raises into question, also brings into question the limitations of video evidence, particularly when it conflicts with witness testimony. We will Another see what happens in that, I talked about that case. On the last roundup is the litigation involving Diamond Sports Group. Call that's the collection of 19 regional sports networks or RSNs doing business as Bally Sports. They had recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and Major League Baseball and a few different Major League Baseball teams filed an emergency motion in which they want a judge to force Diamond to pay these teams while they continue to broadcast their games as the bankruptcy proceeding plays out. Within a week, the Phoenix Suns and the Las Vegas Golden Knights have announced plans to put their broadcasts back on over-the-air television, where fans will not have to pay anything to watch. Diamond responded by then suing the Suns for moving their broadcasts off of Diamond Sports during the bankruptcy and depriving them of their ability to show these games and obviously generate revenue from it. A couple of other interesting notes. RJ Anderson at CBSSports.com wrote a piece that there is some talk, although no specific efforts yet, but some talk from front office workers in Major League Baseball teams about the possibility of unionization given the amount of hours they work and the relatively low pay that they receive. So again, no report of any ongoing efforts to organize front office workers, but some conversations about, as the article says, an emerging appetite for unionization at a time when a labor movement is sweeping. Trans athletes, one of the many developments, Brittany Griner tweeted out that it is a crime to ban trans people from competing with biological women in sports. Riley Gaines, former swimmer for the University of Kentucky and a very outspoken advocate against trans women participating in sports, said, which NBA team would have had you since apparently the overwhelming obvious difference between men and women should simply be overlooked? It is heartbreaking to see athletically successful women take this demeaning stance. Again, just part of this ongoing battle over trans female athlete participation in competitive sports. On to golf. We have talked a lot about the legal battles between the Live Golf Tour and the PGA Tour and the official World Golf Rankings and the European Tour. But one thing we wondered about was what would be the effect of this new competition from the Live Golf Tour on the PGA Tour has not faced much real competition in its existence. And one data point shows that this is having a real impact, at least for the players on the PGA Tour. And so the data point is that last year, Scotty Scheffler set a PGA record with $14.1 million in prize money. This year, John Rahm has set a new record in April, has already won $14.4 million. And Tiger Woods never won more than $11 million in a year. So is that a direct result of the Live Golf Tour? Maybe, certainly seems like it's a contributing factor. What that means in the eventual outcome of this dispute, who knows, but at least it's good news for PGA Tour golfers. And finally, and probably least, in the Bram von Polen story of the week, in the Belgian Pro Soccer League, fans of the club Charleroi 
allegedly threw dead rats at opposing fans during a match. Not only that, but the rats were reportedly painted in the colors of the opposing team. The league is investigating the incident, and of course, I will keep you updated as warranted. And speaking of keeping you updated, Brown Von Polen, podcast favorite, started in a four to nothing win last week against Dordrecht. So congrats to Bram. And that is your update on the things I think you need to know in the sports law-ish world. Thank you for listening. Thank you, as always, to my sponsors, the Tulane Center for Sport and RitVest. And I will see you next time between the lines.